right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the You're Still Out Golf podcast. We've got a very special, kind of a historical look back on one of our favorite courses here today. Of course, I'm your host, Keith Needham. I'm joined here by my co-host and member of this very special course, Mr. Jonathan Teal. JT, this is a fun one, isn't it, bud? Keith, um, good to see you as always. Uh, I'd say this is a podcast 100 years in the making. Um, We are covering the 100th anniversary of Lincoln Park Golf Club, July 4th, 1922. Uh, the, The golf club out here was established, and we have a real treat to be able to bring you um, a deep, deep dive on the history of Lincoln Park brought to you by uh, Bob Blackburn, former executive director of the Oklahoma Historical Society, and uh, as we understand it, dew sweeper every Friday morning right here at Lincoln Park. And then Aaron Christopete, the director of golf, who has been a um, now a regular guest on the podcast to break down that history and uh, very excited to share this one with folks. A- absolutely. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Actually recorded this out here at the clubhouse at Lincoln Park. And so special thanks to AK for setting that up for us. And uh, special thanks to Bob for dropping some real knowledge. This was, uh, this was really informative too. There's a lot of stuff that I feel like I know a lot just by proxy with you, JT. But uh, Bob, man, he even, he even had some things that I don't think you and I knew about, right? He absolutely did, both uh, from a golf perspective and just from a little bit of city history on how certain things got done. And so uh, happy to bring to this uh, episode to people on 4th of July weekend, take a deep dive and be looking forward to a book uh, that Bob is authoring on the history of Lincoln Park that will be released in conjunction with the 100th anniversary tournament that Aaron is putting on uh, first part of August. We'll cover that in the pod. Absolutely. Without further ado, here is Bob Blackburn and Aaron Christopete on the 100 Years of Lincoln Park. All right, ladies and gentlemen, joined by a couple of very special guests here on the YSO podcast today. One, a returning guest. One, a new guest. Bob Blackburn, Historical Society work, uh, kind of a historian of golf in Oklahoma in general. Joining us, Bob, introduce yourself. Say hello here so our listeners can, can identify, your, identify your voice. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for the invitation to be on here to talk about one of my favorite topics, both professionally and personally. Awesome. Having awesome. played at Lincoln since 1994 and, uh, and uh, every Friday morning generally, but uh, it's a great course, and I've always enjoyed my friendship with Steve and more recently Aaron but uh, I was at the Oklahoma Historical Society for 42 years before I retired last year. Wow. And in those years, went from editor of the Chronicles of Oklahoma to deputy director of operations to executive director for 22 years. And we built the Oklahoma History Center and a bunch of museums around the state. And uh, I'm still writing books. Next one I'm working on is a centennial history of Twin Hills, uh, which will be book number 27. But I've, I've loved the history of golf and enjoyed it my entire life. I remember following Arnold Palmer around Quail Creek uh, back in the, <laughs> in the 60s as a, as a teenager. So it's been part of my life for many years, and I'm, I'm happy to talk about it today with Aaron. Fantastic, fantastic. The aforementioned Aaron Christopete been back on the podcast again, right? So it's been, golly, probably six months, seven months since the last time we talked to you, Aaron. But welcome back, sir. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Keith. Yeah, thank you guys very much for having me back on. And um uh, Excited about this topic, and it's going to be a big event, uh, or a very significant event in time here, obviously, with Lincoln Park turning 100 years old next Monday, officially. Um, and there's some other things that we're going to have going on that we'll touch on here in a little bit. But um, good to be on with you guys again. Now, I think since we last had you on, uh, a shift in uh, your role and title here at Lincoln Park. So for the folks who don't know about that, uh, provide a little color to, the, to that change. Sure, yeah. As of uh, the end of September, September 30th, was Steve Carson's last day as the director of golf out here. After 31 years, he certainly put in his due. Um, And then I became the director of golf on October 1st, officially, that very next day. And so, what are we, eight, nine months in now? Um, You know, I spent a lot of time here as the head golf professional and was very involved day to day, but officially the title did change October 1st last year. And it's certainly been a busy time with all that's going on. We had good weather through the winter and with a couple of facilities being closed around town, this place has been busier than it's been in a long time. So um, it's been an exciting year to have it be my first one under the helm. So. Well, we're excited for you, bud. You've done a great job out here. Obviously, we're huge, huge fans of, of Lincoln Park. Consider it 
the home golf course uh, here locally in Oklahoma City. And, and literally for a year, we've been excited about recording this very podcast because uh, I didn't realize that it was going to be Lincoln's 100th year anniversary until you told me about this time last year, to be honest. And um, so we're going to we're going to dive deep, guys. And, and Bob, you know, being the historian that you are, we're, we're going to we're going to try to start at the beginning best we can. So tell us what you know about how and why did Lincoln Park as a golf course even ever come to be? Right. In 1921, there were two golf courses in Oklahoma City, and both were private membership courses, uh, Lakeside and Oklahoma City Golf and Country Club. Of course, Oklahoma City Golf and Country Club was not in its present location. It was down in what is now Crown Heights neighborhood at, at the moment. But those were the only two courses. So there's really no place for the public to go play. And golf was just becoming a popular event. This is the age of Bobby Jones making a very popular radio. Went on the air in, in, here in Oklahoma City in 1920 so people could listen to sporting events across yeah. the country. And, and really the 20s was the golden age of sports. That's the the decade of uh, Babe Ruth, boxing, baseball, Thor, horse racing, yeah, boxing, all stuff, right? yeah. and it's just huge. And Americans were going nuts over sports, and golf was part of that growth. And so a group of, of individuals here in Oklahoma City, including Art Jackson, a Scottish immigrant who had been around golf his entire life, uh, attracted a group of friends. And between the Civitan Club, which was a small organization here in Oklahoma City kind of then that was also the golden age of, of organizations rotary had just been created 10 years earlier almost 20 years earlier uh, it was the golden age of Lions clubs all of those things and so the Civitan club was one of those what can we do for this community that we don't have already well they found some sponsors first national bank of Oklahoma City that had been established in 1889 the day of the land run stepped up the Oklahoma railway company that ran the, the streetcar company that had been created by John Chartel and Anton Klassen in 1902. And if you think about their motivation, well, the more people are traveling around town to do different things, uh, the more fares they're going to get. And it's going to promote real estate development and all of that. And in 1921, we had some assets in Oklahoma City that would pay dividends for years. And that was the Grand Boulevard concept. 1909, the people in Oklahoma City voted for a huge bond issue to create a grand raceway around Oklahoma City called Grand Boulevard, which we can, all, we can see Grand Boulevard from where we're sitting right. today. <laughs> and then four regional parks. And originally they called it Northeast Park, Northwest, Southwest, Southeast. Well, today we know those as Lincoln Park, Woodson Park, uh, Will Rogers Park, and Trosper. Those were the four parks established cool. in 1909, very early. In our, when the city at that time was probably uh, less than 50,000 people. But yet they invested in that huge park system. So we had the assets, we had the land. And, uh, and Art Jackson and his friends decided we are going to create a golf course. They approached the city, can we build a golf course on your land? And this was not a municipal course owned by the city of Oklahoma City, other than the fact they owned the land on which it was played. Okay. And so they put together the Lincoln Park Golf Club. It was a, a private organization with a president. It would stay in business until the 1960s. And so the Lincoln Park Golf Club was the actual employer of Art Jackson. It was the secretary manager of the golf club who then designed uh, the first course, starting with nine holes that opened on July 4th, 1922, and then another nine uh, that was opened uh, the next year. They become the first 18 holes here at Lincoln Park. And so they, uh, they had sand greens, uh, the green fees, uh, whopping 25 cents around <laughs> and first come first serve so when you got there you waited in line to tee off uh, the tee boxes were basically just mown areas in the fairway the fairways were just mow the grass short the old prairie grass they yeah. removed a few trees but largely used the lay of the land which was you know today we see the value in that the perry maxwell approach to golf even though we didn't do it here other course designers like Art Jackson use that same approach. Let's use the land. Let's find where those holes are and just discover them. And of course, they would change over the years. And Aaron can talk more about that. But he found those first nine holes with the sand greens and they started playing on July 4th and then a tournament with several hundred uh, uh, entrants wow. in August of 1922. And it was a big deal. The public without having a membership at Lakeside or Oklahoma City Golf and Country Club could come play as much as they wanted. And that was a turning point and really the beginning 
of what we now call the municipal courses in Oklahoma City. And, of course, as all of us know, Oklahoma City is one of the best urban areas in the country yep. for access to golf. With number of courses, uh, the price, very moderate, and the quality is high. And one reason I think, and this is looking ahead, is that uh, the leadership with Art Jackson, UC Ferguson, Steve, and now Aaron, uh, it's no surprise that everyone has stayed 20 to 30 to 40 years. Right. And then the quality of the maintenance here. We interviewed Jim Wood a couple of weeks ago, and we can talk about him later. But having people the quality of a Jim Wood to say, we will have a country club kind of course here with the quality that people expect. Uh, and it's just one of the best maintained courses in all of Oklahoma, private or public. And so, but I got a good start there with Art Jackson and that dedicated crew of, of civic leaders who just wanted something better for quality of life. Well, you mentioned it started out as a nine hole golf course. I didn't even, I guess I should have assumed sand greens because a lot of courses were sand greens at the time, but I did know it was originally nine holes. Um, so maybe if you would, Bob, start with you and then Aaron um, kind of provide some context as well. Do we know kind of what that original nine hole routing was? How many of those holes still exist, if any? I, we know that the original clubhouse was in a vastly different location than the one we're, one we're sitting in today. So, uh, yeah, give us a little bit of context around that original layout. I don't know. Um which holes the original nine were. I've got a layout of, of back in 1961 when the previous clubhouse was built in the current footprint. But of course, that old clubhouse, if, if folks remember, that old gray stone building that's behind what is, or was behind what is currently number two green of the West Course, that building actually came down over the wintertime. Um, that's the zoo's property now. So they decided that they didn't need it up there anymore. But I'm presuming that the original nine holes would probably have been the, some of the closest holes to that building. And just for logistical purposes, I've got no record or anything other than it would kind of make sense that you'd start with that building and you'd grow out from there, right? Right. Um, and bring yourself, you know, one through nine to come back to it at some point. So other than that, I've never seen a layout. I don't know anything to, to suggest which nine were the original nine. Um, I think we have a decent idea of which would be the original 18. Kind of the same thing on this side of Grand Boulevard, I'm assuming, on the west side of the road, closer to that clubhouse. Right. We do know that in uh, the 1960s, uh, when they, excuse me, 1930, 31, when they changed and added another 18 holes, they actually split up the original holes. <clears throat> so I would say that the course configuration, and in the article that I'm writing, the booklet that, that Aaron will have for sale here in distribution, will have a better description of how that changed in 31, because then it changed again in the 60s when right. they went from, from north-south to east-west. But when they created the second 18, they took some of the holes from the original 18 and then moved it to the other course. So in 1931, the new north was one of the original nines with the new nine. And then the other was the original back, you know, inward holes with the new nine. So they reconfigured it that way. And then when they went to east-west in the 60s. Right. They changed configuration, and many of the holes had changed before that. For example, in 1957, when they were building what we called Northeast Highway to connect with the Turner Turnpike that had opened in 1953, <laughs> they cut down Grand Boulevard because the city owned the land. They said, we're going to build this new high-speed limited access highway. Well, it took property on both sides of the road, and it took out three greens of, of the original uh, 36 holes that were there after 1931. And, and then when they, they redesigned to the east-west configuration, they lengthened some holes, shortened some, moved some greens around. And then even before that, several times, uh, they had expanded the tee boxes, changed the greens. And from time to time, there would be investments in improving the greens. And when they would go from sand to Bermuda grass, which okay. would have been in yep. the 20s. And then when they go to bent grass, in, in 2831 time period, they're changing and they're growing and they're adding bunkers. And so any golf course will evolve and change. And what we're trying to do right now is to figure out how that has changed. Piece and, it together. And hopefully for our readers, and, and I only have about uh, 3,000 words to, to do this, but I'm going to try, and maybe with some illustrations, to try to do our best to reconstruct how the course has changed over the years. So 
we players who play every day and think we know the course. I want people to be able to be playing and say, oh, yeah, that's where that original green was. Or, or this used to be a par five, it's now a par four. Or, this used to be, you know, 100 yards shorter. You know, I want people to, to feel the history and see it when they're out there on the course. Well, you know, you mentioned a lot of changes that took place in the early 1930s. You know, there was a guy running around Oklahoma, southern Kansas, about that same time as well, a pretty well-known golf course architect and Perry Maxwell. We're big fans of Mr. Maxwell on this podcast, as I'm sure you are as well. You mentioned maybe a little bit of influence that Art Jackson had, kind of that minimalistic style and taking the land. You know, has your research uncovered or indicated any any connections, maybe even more formal than that with Mr. Maxwell? I have not found the formal, but we do know that Perry Maxwell in 1922, so the same year this course opened, he and some partners bought the land east of Grand Boulevard that we now know as Twin Hills. And he started working on the course in 22, and it would open in 23 for its first play. And so the fact that these two men and one of Perry Maxwell's partners was a Scotsman, and so the Scots were developing courses all across the country. They were seen as the gurus that knew how sure. to design courses. So there had to be interaction. And I can't believe that it was a, a rivalry so much because Art would design some other courses for the city of Oklahoma City. But Perry, of course, he just became a national and internationally known golf designer. Art was more local. And so the fact that that was a, a, a private investment by Perry Maxwell in Twin Hills, and it later was sold, and of course the rest of that story, but the fact that Perry was there and, and got out of that course within a year, so he did not stay. He went on to other things and designing other courses, but uh, they had to have had an acquaintance. We cannot prove that yet, but I cannot imagine that being that close and having the same circle of friends, and we think today, you know, every other person is going to be a golf fan, and about every one in five is going to be a golfer. Uh, and so we th see our little network of friends. Uh, but then it would have been much smaller. There weren't right. that many players. Sure, and sure. it was a budding sport. It'd be like pickleball would have been 10 years ago. <laughs> you know, there are three places. <laughs> see, you see the same 15 pickleball. people, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the way golf would have been in 1921-22. And so you know they had to have been friends. And the fact that they had the same approach to golf, which would have been – Part of the necessity of the times, you didn't have much of a budget right. to build these courses. I think I've seen a figure. I think the entire investment in Lincoln Park in that first year to get to 18 was like $6,000. Wow. And, uh, and Perry, across the street, was trying to develop that as a private golf course uh, and couldn't make it work. And actually, it was then sold. But uh, he went on and, and found that he could make a living as a designer rather than a golf course owner. Of course, he still had his connections at Dorney. He would never give up on that, and that's where he's buried. But uh, Perry Maxwell would circle back to Oklahoma City from time to time, other courses, and uh, when they developed Hefner in 49, they brought him back again there. So uh, UC Ferguson by that time would have been one of those professionals who saw Art Jackson as his mentor and probably UC and Perry were, were good friends, I would suppose, if we could go back in time and ask those questions. And I know I've seen where a couple of people have hinted that Perry Maxwell had at least some consulting role, uh, like you're talking about, with Art Jackson. And on the website, Perry Maxwell Archive, which I actually have pulled up in front of me, it says multiple accounts credit Maxwell with remodeling the greens on both Lincoln Park golf courses. So possibly when they switched from sand to bent grass greens, maybe he had a role at that point. Um, but at least there was some connection there. Um, to have some involvement with Lincoln Park. Well, and part of that may be that he had experience with bent grass greens yeah. elsewhere. Yeah, right. And he was helping the, the core superintendent. He was helping Art. Uh, and that may be where we got some of those tiered plateaus on some of these greens. Right. And where, in fact, your false front on, what is it, 16, got me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yards out with my drive. Got a lot of people. Yeah. seven iron. And I You're missed, not alone. And it rolled right back down. I was, uh, that cost me some strokes. But that was Perry Maxwell, typical of the way that he would design those courses. So you're right. He probably did have an influence on those greens. Yeah. Well, Bob, you mentioned the, the north-south uh, format or the setup, uh, which for folks who probably don't know, 
Um, not only did it grow from the nine to the 18 and then a second 18, uh, but those 18 holes were in a much different configuration than they are now. So let's, let's uh, at least for a second shift to kind of that 1960, early 60s uh, area era when we had our what, second uh, clubhouse here at Lincoln Park. That, that made some big changes in how the golf course was laid out. Um, as I uh, have looked at that old routing, it eliminated some holes, created some others. So, Aaron, can you kind of take us there? Take us to 61, what kind of necessitated uh, the need for the clubhouse? And then um, just give the listeners a couple of examples of how that changed the routing um, of, the, of the two 18s. Sure. Um, you know, I obviously wasn't around for that, but what necessitated it, I'm sure just the volume of traffic that was going on, wanting to have a bigger structure to operate out of than the old, um, and I never even set foot in that old gray stone building, but just looking at it from outside, it wasn't very big, right? But you had one of the busiest courses in the region um, trying to operate out of that. So I'm sure that they wanted to make that investment into that second clubhouse. Um, that's like we said earlier in the current footprint of where the, the new building is. Um, what changed at that point? Well, yeah, when they, when they built that building back in 61, when it opened, that is when we switched from north, south to east and west. And so I've got kind of a bird's eye view photograph, or not photograph, but a sketch of the layout, the course routings of those both. Um, and some of the changes that took place is, and I'll, you know, people are going to be able to relate to what are the current holes the best, I think. So right. what is now number three of the west course used to be number one of the north course. What is now number 13 of the west course used to be number one of the south course. So that's where they got started um, prior to that routing change. Uh, some other key significant differences is what is now 16 of the west used to be a par four, I know. And you can you, where the current forward tee is, I think is where most folks played from because you can kind of see it framed out with a little bit of stonework there. And then the green was not up on the hill. It was a par four, but the green was down below the hill from what I understand. Um, and you, if you, you know, if you stand back there, what's currently, I don't know, 250 yards from the green, you can kind of still visualize where that would be. There's still that cutout kind of down, uh, down the hill like and a, below those rocks. There's at least one or two bunkers down there that don't make a lot of sense to be there. I assume that was because of they were greenside bunkers at the I've, time. I've probably hit it in there before. <laughs> <laughs> You've been where it doesn't make sense be to be. Play, Keith. Right. <laughs> probably on your drive. Too, right? <laughs> <laughs> but that's one of the big ones. A couple other things uh, where the current driving range is, there used to be holes of golf there. So I know there was a par four that extended basically if you, if you can visualize where the stoplight is for 36th and Grand Boulevard. Out near that was a tee box that was kind of coming back to the north, uh, oh, north northwest. Um, to I think they basically played to what is currently number ten green of the west course as a par four. So basically the entire driving range, right over the top of what's now the building, and then to that uh, the current number ten west green I think was a par four, and there was another of what looks like a smaller par three um, that also kind of finished up on what would be the west side of the current driving range. So those are some of the bigger changes. A lot of the holes east of Grand Boulevard uh, currently, uh, and again, about half of those were on the old north, half of those are on the old south, are pretty much intact. There's the only ones, the ones out by um, 36th Street again, what's now 13 and 14, those changed a little bit, but not even that significantly. So most of the other ones, what's now the front nine of the east used to be primarily the... Um, the back nine of the north, a lot of that, that's pretty much the same routing that existed. But those are some of the, certainly the big highlights of what changed when that building moved. Yeah, and you're right, starting with that, um, like the first holes of what were the north and south courses is the easiest thing to visualize because I think most people who have played here a lot can visualize the old stone building that's in that corner by the zoo. Um, and so that probably meant a, a different way that you even access the property. I assume you probably accessed it off of what is now MLK. Stuff like that's fascinating. You know, I would assume, Bob, and maybe you can give some color to this. Aaron mentioned that stonework on what was most likely the only T um, on what is now number 16. So that would lead us to believe that sometime in that early 30s is when some of that work was done. Right. In fact, one thing I always enjoy pointing out to anyone I'm playing with when you get to that or go drive by that tee box is that the stonework that you see, is, there's like two or three rows of stonework there on the, that forward tee box for the seniors and women. And that was built by the CCCs, the Civilian Conservation Corps, established under the 
Roosevelt administration in 1933 as a way to draw the country out of depression. And it was a way for young kids, uh, uh, I think it was 14 to 22 or something, could get a job. The Army supervised them, and they established a camp here at Lincoln Golf Course, uh, Lincoln Park, and they were doing work at the city zoo. Some of us old-timers remember the old grottos out there. They're mainly gone now, but they were built by CCCs. Well, the CCCs came in and built that tee box, and you can still see it. A lot of that's been torn out since, just for a variety of reasons, but that one is still intact, and it's about the only stonework I can still find on the course. Aaron, you may know of some other that I just can't visualize, yeah. but that that is a sign of, of this public-private partnership and the CCC's influence. Yeah, the other place that I've noticed it is on a couple of little, I uh, wouldn't call them bridges, but a couple of places where they've put, you know, ten, they had put tin horns under the road for, for drainage. There's a couple of little, um, mm-hmm. what I would call bridges that have that kind of stonework that I would assume was uh, of that same vintage. So it's cool if you, it's hard, you know, I think for a lot of golfers, it's hard to not be too focused on kind of how good or bad you're playing. But if you just kind of look around at some of those things, especially on the, what is now the back nine uh, of Lincoln West, there's a lot of cool little things like that that don't quote make sense and are uh, clearly relics of a time gone by that if you'll just pay attention, you can see a lot of that stuff. If I might add just one other little story about that transition going from north, south, to east, west. Sure. The reason they did that, uh, the reason they could do that, is that uh, a very creative city official uh, figured out that they could sell municipal bonds and for improvements on public property. George Shirk, who was president of the Oklahoma Historical Society, had figured out how to do that for the Atoka Water Pipeline okay. earlier in that decade. Well, and of course, that's one reason we have a plentiful supply of water today. He figured out how to use municipal bonds that people wanted to buy because they were tax-free. So when you got your income from it, you did. Well, they were very popular and a good market for it. And uh, they learned that they could use the sewer and water system as the assets, quote, assets, Mm -hmm. to sell government bonds. And this city official worked with the city park commissioner at the time and says, I think we can sell these bonds to make improvements at Lincoln, which they did. But that forced them to say this is really city property that is the asset against which the bonds are sold. To be legal under IRS rules, you had to have an asset that could be liquidated theoretically and the bondholders would get something. So the asset had to be city property, city managed. That's when they changed. The Lincoln Park Golf Club as a private organization that had managed the course up to 1961. So all that time, they were the managers. So UC Ferguson, Art Jackson worked for the private side. They weren't city employees. Suddenly, uh, the the private group says, yes, we want that investment of uh, (laughs) $800,000. And uh, yes, we want that. Well, that allowed them to really improve the course. That's the great leap forward. There had been incremental changes up to that point. But as UC Ferguson said in one interview, uh, that the fairways would be just rock hard in the summers by this time of the year with no irrigation. Right. All they had were wells and hand watering. You couldn't do much of that because of labor costs. So because of limited revenue, uh, just awful conditions. But he said in those days, people could drive the ball farther because it had hit that hard pan and it bounced like it was on concrete. And it would just keep rolling and rolling and rolling. Right. He said today, no one would tolerate those conditions. Well, that change with the municipal bonds going to city ownership and city management. So UC goes from being an employee of a private group to an employee of the golf trust. And that's been pretty much the structure since. There have been some minor tweaks to that governance. But it's been city property, city maintained with city backing. Uh, the financing part of that. So that was a major change. And without that, we could not have done the bond issue later that decade for the new clubhouse that we called Fergie's Place, where I started playing here, that had been expanded with a great, with a bigger restaurant. Any title, you all may not be old enough, but in the 90s, the place was packed for yeah. lunch. Oh, yeah. And it was an excellent place to eat. The military, all the guardsmen, that took up about half of the place at the time. But all of those changes were possible because of this bonding authority. And that changes there in 59, 60, 61. 
Well, I think it ties back to your comment earlier about the leadership, right? So being able to recognize some of these things and put, put them in place uh, for the benefit of not only Lincoln Park, but, uh, but for Oklahoma City as well. But uh, let, let's stay in the early 60s here, Bob. So we were chatting earlier that uh, you, you can remember as a kid following around Arnold Palmer, uh, Quail Creek, the old Oklahoma Open, and some of the other courses around Oklahoma City. You know, another guy was around that same time too, Gary Player, uh, was a pretty good golfer as well, but uh, we've got it here on the big board. You know, we got a few stories about Arnold Palmer and Gary Player. So uh, enlighten us about that. Well, at the at that time, Gary Player and Arnold Palmer were the giants. This is before Jack Nicklaus. Everyone thinks of Jack Nicklaus and the other two. Well, Jack was a kid yep. in in nineteen sixty and sixty one, and Player and Palmer were number one and two and and earned revenue at that time. Although by the time they played here in August. Uh, Palmer was second in earnings at only $57,000 on the year. So obviously the pros are playing for different things. My, my how things have changed. Things have gone They're up. making more gambling on the side, which was <laughs> yeah. kind of the way the pro circuit was known at the time. These are a bunch of hustlers out there. So Charlie Coe, the greatest golfer ever from Oklahoma, in my opinion, uh, never went pro because he, you know, he didn't need the money and you couldn't make any money on the pro circuit. But that year, player had won the Masters before the exhibition match here. Palmer had won the Masters in 60. And in uh, 61, Palmer would win the Open. Player had won it the year before. So they were just back and forth, neck and neck. So they came up with this idea to make a little extra money to promote golf. There's this new new technology called television. (laughs) Television had come to Oklahoma City in 1949 with WKY. Then KW in 54, KOCO in 58, where my mom worked on her television careers, Ida B. Some of your (laughs) listeners may remember her. But anyway, television was new, and they were toying with the idea of covering golf. That was very new. The PGA uh, had not yet signed contracts. It was not that lucrative. But they they even talked about uh, taping the Oklahoma Open, or not taping, but live there was no tape at the time but coming in and showing that but uh when palmer and player says we're going to play a number of matches around the world they were on four continents they had 20 or some matches planned the deal is that the winner of each head-to-head match based on they weren't doing it as match play it was score Mm -hmm. is that the winner would get two thousand dollars the loser would get one and at the end of the year when you take put together all your cumulative scores the best or the lowest score would get $100,000. Okay. So they had some incentive to a play. A lot of money, yeah. Well, I think it was the eighth in this, this worldwide exhibition. They played here in Oklahoma City at Lincoln as part of the dedication ceremonies for the new clubhouse and this new configuration and this, you know, upgrading of everything. So they came, and a big celebration. The city uh, allowed – at first they put up, I think it was 4,000 uh, – Tickets, no, 3,500 spectators could get the original tickets. And uh, they did not even give free passes to the press, which today <laughs> would be unheard of. They did not give free passes to the city council members. So they said, this is money for the exhibition, but any profit beyond that two and 1,000 is going to go to youth golf. And so it was a good cause. People bought the tickets, and here they come. So 3,500 people following them. And, they, and in the newspaper accounts, it said that Palmer, who was a long hitter, uh, was out driving player by about 20 to 30 yards on every hole. But, of course, player was a precision player, iron will, that determination to compete still has it today. And it was back and forth, but Palmer won that day. And Palmer shot a, uh, let's see, he shot a 68, 36 on the front, 32 on the back for 68 player, 41, 34 for 75. So Palmer won that day, and I'm sure there were a lot of happy people because Palmer had that charisma. Right. And, you know, we hear about it today, but those of us who were around at the time could follow him and see him. And, and of course, I watched him on television. You were like 10 rows back, and I was looking under people's legs as a kid <laughs> watching Palmer play. But he just had a magic aura about him that no golfer since has had, in my opinion. Of course, I'm prejudiced because that was my generation but Palmer made everyone happy. The press was there. They raised money for youth golf. And, uh, and Aaron still has the original scorecard from that match here on display in a little mini museum that, uh, that was created here. So did they play the east or the west or a composite? I, 
I, I think the West, and the only reason I say that, I mean, there's, there's a few photographs I've seen of that day, and a couple of them are just kind of chipping around the green. It's very hard to tell what's what. But there's one of uh, Arnie hitting a tee shot on what I believe is seven of the West, just looking at kind of the background. Uh, well, not even the background, but the hole, basically. You can see kind of the uphill, a little bit of a bend to the right. The trees are different because right. of how, you know, how many years have passed. <laughs> but that's the only hole when I look at that photograph that I can relate it to. And so I... I presume that means they played the West. Yeah. Probably going uphill into a stiff south wind, if I had Probably. to guess. So that's kind of kind of well. Kinda and added there. to that, I did find a note on the course in in the book that I'm going to have word play by play because people want to know about those two players. But the ninth hole that day was 321 yards on the West. Interesting. And so it was a different configuration then, and it said that Palmer drove only 30 yards short of the green. I take that back. That's the seventh hole, 321 yards, seventh hole. So I guess he had the wind at his back, but he almost drove the green that day, and that of course hit hit the press. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. It's it's very interesting because you know, at that point, who knows if the full switch over and the whole configurations were even complete at that point. Yeah. What, at what of, date did they change the yeah, routing? Was it effective for that match or not? Very very interesting, and um, and a great way to obviously kick off that what would be the next generation of of Lincoln Park. Um, Bob, at least five times already, you have mentioned uh, the name UC Ferguson. I think um, while Arnold Palmer is certainly a more sexy name that folks will recognize, I think UC Ferguson, uh, hard to encapsulate his impact on not only Lincoln, but Oklahoma golf in general. Let's just kind of start with how UC came to be at Lincoln Park and, and have you hit on some of his we'll call it career highlights. Uh, I'm sure we could get long-winded on this one, but uh, try to encapsulate for our listeners uh, the impact that he had. Well, I'll, I'll try to keep it short, as you can tell. <laughs> hard I, to do. I, it's I hard have, to do with UC. I get sidelined with stories, especially on UC, who is an urban legend. You know, when he retired, he had Abe Lemons uh, and, and others like that coming in and doing his roast. He was very popular, and people loved being around him. And he considered this place his home. He never took vacations. He was here seven days a week. And when people <laughs> would say, like why are you doing that? He says, I feel more at home here than I do anywhere. Of course, I guess some of us can empathize with that as well. Let's just not tell our wives. You're right, yeah. Uh, Sorry, children. <laughs> yeah. But uh, UC, born 1915, and started working here as a caddy, you know, before he was 10 years old. And so he's already working here. So he knew Art Jackson. He knew some of those original supporters of you know the the officers of, of the Lincoln Park Golf Club and he rose through the ranks so he would go from caddy to assistant or a golf pro shop manager he would uh, be on maintenance crew assistant first and then the first assistant pro and then pro and uh, he just worked his way up he looked at Art Jackson as his mentor and he said Art was a pretty good player really but Art never won a lot of matches because he said he believed that Art did not want anybody to lose. He wanted them to feel good about it. He mm. felt good about the course. Uh, but he said uh, Art was good. And UC became a good player. And UC qualified for the 1946 PGA and played. Wow. And so, and he would represent Lincoln Park in the inner, all the courses in Oklahoma City had inter club competitions. Okay. So they were playing Oklahoma City Golf and Country Club, Lakeside, and the others. And UC would have been one of those team members, along with the best players of the clubs at that time. And Lincoln, uh, by the 30s, was pretty much dominating. They were even beating the Oklahoma City Golf and Country Club teams on a regular basis. Uh, and he was only about five foot nine, 170 pounds, married, two children. But this was his place, and he was a mentor to many young golfers. He encouraged youth. He was a real advocate for youth golf because he knew they were going to be the golfers who 10 years later would be coming back. He liked to have tournaments here. He, he wanted to host uh, high school championships. And in one of those, just a note, because I like Charlie Coe's story. I did an exhibit on Charlie. Charlie, as a high school senior at Ardmore in 1941, won the high school championships here at Lincoln. Nice. So UC would have known Charlie as a teenager, literally a teenager, and would have remained friends with him thereafter. But UC was just one of those people who uh, had this spirit of serving the community, knowing that this was a, a part of quality of life issue for the people in Oklahoma City. The Parks Department uh, obviously trusted him, gave him a lot of authority. 
And when they did that huge bond issue, they said, you see, you're in charge. And he and his maintenance crew, and they brought in, uh, you know, golf course designer. But uh, UC pretty much was in charge. And, of course, the story about Susie Maxwell yeah. riding her horse on the course. And he said, you can't do that. Well, she came back a couple of days later, and he said, well, here's some old clubs, and here's some golf balls. Her, her brother was a caddy at Lincoln, so they still had caddies in the 50s. And uh, she started hitting balls, and he recognized her determination and hard work. And under his guidance, really, is her first teaching pro. Uh, she would become one of the world greats, member of the Golf Hall of Fame, Women's U.S. Open winner several times, and just one of those. And, and like Arnie, she was charismatic. A lot right. of people, she wasn't on TV that much because of the, of the times. They wouldn't really put women's golf on TV much later. But apparently she had that charisma in this gambler's attitude. And UC was talking to a reporter one day, is that one of the opens he was watching, he was there, and he said on the 18th, she was only one stroke ahead, and she had a tough shot over water, and she could have laid up and probably at least gotten into a playoff. She said, not Susie. Susie never would have considered laying up. And she went for it, hit the green, part one, U.S. Open. And, of course, that's the way Arnie would have been. Arnie never would have considered, even if he had – to shape a shot two ways around two trees. He would have tried it. <laughs> and that was the way Susie was. But she developed those skills right here on this course, on this property, with UC Ferguson, one of the pioneers of golf in Oklahoma. Yeah, and it's cool that Susie Maxwell Burning goes into the Hall of Fame this year alongside Tiger Woods. Anytime you do anything alongside Tiger Woods, even if it's by coincidence, your kind of profile is elevated. And it was very cool to see uh, that happen. Aaron would... would would it be obvious that, that Susie Maxwell Burning is kind of the best player that um, LP ever produced, or maybe are there some others in that conversation? I think she certainly has to be. Um, and there's been a couple of people that have come through here that have backgrounds related to Lincoln Park, certainly on the men's side as well. Uh, the Hayes brothers, um, the Edwards brothers, Danny Edwards actually just did a chipping clinic out here recently, but a couple of the guys that have made it to the PGA Tour that have ties to Lincoln Park from youth golf and um, from their childhood growing up. But no, I think, you know, if you look at just how you build your resume against the competition you're playing against, nobody else that I'm aware of has three major championships. Or, I, or maybe she might have a fourth, actually. But I think she has three U.S. Opens and then I think she, won I think she had one another yeah, one. Maybe she won the Dinah or something yeah. like that. Um, but I don't think anyone else, even the guys that have made it to the tour, that, that you know, can boast major championships on their resume uh, like that. So, one no, little, I think she stands one, alone. One little personal story about Danny. Danny and I were... Uh, uh, on the same football team at Edmond High School. We were both graduates in 69. And from the junior high team where Danny was the quarterback because he was just this great athlete, he did not want to play high school football. We all thought, why would the captain of the football team and the star not play? Well, he had already got hooked on golf. Yeah. And Kicking Bird was under construction when we were in high school. So Kicking Bird had not yet opened. That's right. And as I recall, maybe Edmund had a course that I was not aware of, but it was a little town until Quail Creek was built. And then Quail became a place. But Danny would have played at Lincoln in those early years. Uh, and so, and of course, his ability was amazing. And then David, his younger brother, would come along and, and win even more uh, championships. Right. Hey, AK, you've you've overseen you know Jonathan swing out here a lot. So has he cracked the top one hundred? I think no. he can take the fifth on that. <laughs> no. Let's no. let's let's keep it. We we need to keep some evergreen material here. Okay, I'm I'm one swing away from a breakthrough, man. Right. Uh, well, Bob, you know you mentioned earlier talking about Arnie shaping shots around trees and and all, and we and we alluded to it earlier, number sixteen and some of the history behind that hole. You know, Till has it classified as one of the more polarizing holes in Oklahoma City. I, I absolutely love it, but uh, do we want to talk a little bit about the history of that hole? And, uh, you know, like I said, we touched on it earlier. Green wasn't necessarily where it was now, but kind of moving it up there on the hill, the false front and all that stuff. You know, just your opinion of number 16 on Lincoln West, uh, a, a fun hole, right? Oh, it's always been one of my favorites. Of course, I love, I love both east and west. But, uh, in fact, on the east, there are four holes there uh, on the back nine that are just, to me, four of the greatest holes in Oklahoma. I love playing all four of those, but uh, 16 is special. In fact, this Monday when I played, I hit the cart path with my drive, and man, it went another 50 yards. So 150 yards out, I was thinking, ah, today, eagle time. And I've only <laughs> eagled it twice uh, over the years, and birdie is rare. But uh, I pulled it a little, and then uh, 
and then it hit that false front and came back down. And instead of my eagle, I, I, I got a bogey because I screwed up. But uh, it is such a great hole. And what if you if you can drive it in two for you know hackers like me? That's a good day. Sure. And uh, it is. And I love the green. It's got a lot of slope to it. And once you play it a thousand times like I have, you get to know what part of the green, depending on where the flag is. And uh, it's such a great hole in, in, because it's a huge green. And really in the 60s is when they enlarged all of the greens because they found for maintenance reasons they needed larger greens so they could move yep, the pins around. Reasons. So instead of everyone going to the same two places and, and really packing it down and causing maintenance problems, bigger and so moving it around well on monday it was right there on the edge <laughs> i was going to complain to you aaron but i, I didn't put that, that no, it wasn't worth the time <laughs> because that's where i hit a pretty good shot and it just about two feet short and it rolled back down but uh, if it's there on the edge it's a different you play it a different way if it's back there on the back right uh you have to hit it where you know you're uphill if it's on the left you know it's going to break 10 feet if you're on the So even the green itself is fun to play. And the more you play it, the more uh, you can use your own strategy if you can hit the right shot, of course. And then whether you go for it or not in that last tree that's right there yep. in front. I bet I've hit that tree of a hundred times over the years. Uh, but it's, it is a great hole. It's one of my favorites out here. Bob's going to be lobbing it like the Eisenhower tree, the Blackburn tree, right, right there <laughs> on the 16. Aaron, uh, what, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? And we, we, you and I have talked about it a bunch and maybe even touched on it on the, one of the podcasts that you came on. But it, it, there are folks who, who aren't a fan of it like Bob is. Kind of just your perspective on why it's so, again, I use the word polarizing. Maybe that's the wrong word. But what are your, what are your uh, takeaways on 16? I think polarizing can be accurate. It certainly presents itself as a risk-reward par 5. And for some of those reasons of, of people misjudging how much uphill, um, sometimes you can't feel the wind that's typically out of the south there because of both hill and trees there, uh, basically at the end of the fairway with the trees. Um, I, I do think it's a shot that sometimes, that second shot specifically, sometimes a good shot isn't rewarded as much as it would be on a, a hole with less, I don't know, stuff or up, up around the green, the elevation change, the trees and whatnot. I can think of one, there's one local college golf coach um, that coaches a women's team that he tells his players typically when they have their tournament here, do not go for that green and two. He'll, he's seen enough other players from opponent teams that do. And then they, you know, they go, they hit a ball up there in the trees. It kind of plays Plinko. They end up underneath, bad lie and some thicker rough. They don't have a clear shot. They end up making six or seven. Meanwhile, his girls, you know, play it straight forward and play it out to the middle of the fairway on their second shot, pitch it up the hill, two putt for par and move on. Um, so that even though they didn't birdie it on a par five where you might think you have a chance, you may have gained a shot or shot and a half on the field that way. So um, for that reason, I think there's some people that will always like a risk award par five better than some others. And, uh, uh, you know, it just depends on who's playing it and what their mindset is. But no, it's it's certainly a it's a nice hole to have for competition late in a round because it can certainly separate you know people if there's if there's a close match coming in. It can be a hole that will define a match or a tournament. See, and yeah. that's why I drive it down there on the right to that bunker that doesn't make sense because I don't right. want to tempt myself with a good drive. Right, I don't want to have to go for it in two. So You're it's playing all the long game. It's all strategy. Yeah, so. yeah I I love the hole. Um, definitely on record saying that and i find it odd when folks say they they hate it and it's got to just be to me because they don't play to the to the obvious which is well, hit your made, drive hit your second shot hit a wedge up there and see if you can make a putt made and too many sevens and eights on that i was just gonna yes. say the people that, that hate it are typically going to be doing that yeah they can have their little blow up on that hole and they leave the round frustrated and they can trace it back to that hole well you know i think regardless of folks view on 16 lincoln park in general um i think if you if you take a poll, which I guess is kind of going on uh, right now, but uh, but by far the most popular uh, course um, that, that folks regularly get get access to in Oklahoma City. What would you kind of, um, I guess, attribute that to, uh, Aaron? You know, it, is it as simple as being on the best land and the best condition? Um, what what would you attribute Lincoln's popularity and and by most people's account being the best municipal course in Oklahoma City? I think the land certainly has a big thing to do with it. You know, uh, Bob was talking earlier about Art Jackson way back when, when he started designing it, just using the land to your advantage. You know, if you look around town, um, obviously Oklahoma is a relatively flat state. Um, other parts of, of Oklahoma City are flatter than we are. Um, just thinking about here on the northeast side of town with Lincoln Park and Twin Hills right across I-35, both have some of the more undulating topography that we have in town. And that obviously lends itself to creating some very scenic golf course holes. 
um, and, and very good playability. Bob also touched on earlier condition-wise, and I think Lincoln Park has prided itself on having some of the best course conditions, especially on the public golf side of things for many, many years. Um, Jim Wood, that was the superintendent for about 21 years, that started back in 98. He had come from Oak Tree, what was the men's club, now Oak Tree National. Um, so he had, you know, that type of mindset that uh, when he was brought in, Lincoln Park, from what I understood, was not in the best of shape in those maybe the five, six years prior to that. But he had to come in and get some get the turf healthier again. Um, you know, they, they put it at the forefront of their minds between Steve Carson and Jim Wood to have basically tournament conditions almost every day, have a very good golf course there. And, and you know, when I started working here back in 2011, and even before that, when I played it a couple of times, um, it was no, just known for the quality of the greens. And that's something that Jim basically brought. We've continued that. Our, our superintendent now, Jimmy Kinney, has been on board. He worked for Jim for about four years and then took over, what, two to three years ago now. Um, and he has continued and if not improved upon that. You know, like Bob said, we interviewed Jim a few, few couple weeks back. Um, and I remember the phrase that Jim used a couple times was, Jimmy's done more with less than I ever could. Um, when it comes to the science of being a superintendent, uh, maybe it's just a generational thing that, you know, paying attention to new improvements has become along in, in, the, uh, in the industry. But um, I think Jimmy knows some of that stuff, maybe even just a little bit better. Um, and that's no disrespect to Jim at Wood at all because he did a phenomenal job for those 21 years. But uh, we've stayed in great condition, and I think that is certainly something that's at the forefront of people's minds when they think about where to go, where to play, um, and then how many people we're putting through here on a daily basis, especially these last couple of years. Bob, anything to add to that? Yes, I uh, I think it comes back to leadership of all the books that I've written and the speeches that I've given. I always talk about leadership, uh, that all of us walk onto the stage of history at a given time, and we have challenges and opportunities. And history is made by what people do as leaders. And when Steve Carson became head pro, he earned the confidence of the golf trust. He earned the confidence of the community. And when he was successful in encouraging the city to pass another bond issue to improve the West, and I had already started playing here in 94. Well, that was in 98. And they closed it for quite a while. Well, Steve knew he needed someone to be his eyes and ears on the ground. But yeah, he could handle the front office and the things that someone like Aaron does today. But he had to have someone out there watching. When I built the History Center, I hired an architect uh, to be there every day with construction crews, with the other consultants. Well, Steve knew that Jim Wood was going to be that person on the ground. So Jim comes at a critical time, not just when you have this challenge, but you have the money to invest. Yeah. And so having the assets, the beautiful course, the tradition, the trust of the community that, hey, guys, we're going to shut this course down for a couple of years. So f <laughs> especially for us seniors who get used to playing on a regular basis and yeah. you tell us, wait a minute, you can't play? because there's a tournament or they're closing. Wait a minute, it's my course. That's just the mindset. But Steve had that, he had that confidence in the community that he'd say, guys, if you wait, you're going to be pleased with the results. He found the right person, Jim Wood, to come in and say, you're in charge. You build it. And then, of course, when the West opens again, everyone saw this is one of the best courses in Oklahoma. That could rival anything, uh, any of the private courses. Yeah, and I didn't catch myself when I said it, but I should have really just one of the best courses in Oklahoma City, period, public or private. It's yeah, not, absolutely. It didn't even need the designation of, you know, what is it the best municipal course? It's like, is it the, just the best course uh, and why is it so popular? So, uh, so uh, agreed on that. And the part that is the oldest, obviously, is a significant part of that. Um, there's people that have played here. I, I bet more people have played Lincoln Park than any other golf course, and that's more individual golfers mm -hmm. have played Lincoln Park more than any other course in the state. Obviously, the 100-year part of it is a significant part of that, but uh, the popularity, when you combine it with that, there's been more individual players that have come through here probably than any of the course. Yeah, great stuff. Uh, well, you, you mentioned that 100 years, right? So we're coming up on it. Obviously, we're going to be releasing this podcast in, in a couple of days right before that 100th anniversary, but it's a busy week, and we certainly are thankful for you guys for spending an hour or so with us here during what is a busy week leading up to the holiday weekend, and not to mention uh, the other events coming up, but let's let's talk a little bit about what club championship. We've got the hundredth anniversary tournament. We we got we got some stuff coming up here this week, right, AK? We do. Our club championship is going to be in a couple weekends, July 9th and tenth. And there's certainly still room for people to sign up if they'd like to. They can check out our Facebook page for that. Um, there's also some signage inside the building if you happen to be out here that people can look at and get signed up. You can sign up right in our golf shop or through the website. Or you can find the links to that Facebook page. 
Um, we are going to do a commemorative tournament for the 100th year anniversary, and that's going to be Saturday, August 13th. Uh, there's going to be sort of two parts to that. The East Course is going to host a four-person scramble for just anyone that wants to come play and be a part of it. The West Course is going to host a two-person best ball event that will have scored both, both gross and net um, for maybe the little bit more competitive type of player. So we're hoping to fill both of those up with roughly 100 players on each and just have a, make a nice day of uh, people that have been around here a long time and appreciate the facility and the fact of uh, the, the role that is played in the Oklahoma City community and the golfing community specifically. Awesome. Plan to uh, plan to participate in those. Uh, Bob, you mentioned it or at least alluded to it a couple of times. Tell us a little bit about the, the commemorative book that you're putting together uh, on the history of Lincoln Park uh, and how folks can get at that. They'll be able to, I think Aaron can talk about distribution because it'll be here through the pro shop and members or everyone who enters that tournament will get a copy, Aaron, is Very that right? Cool. Yeah, we're going to give one to every player, and then we'll have, depending on how many we get produced, uh, certainly have some leftovers in the shop to sell. And then uh, I think you called me maybe two months ago and said, Bob, what can we do? Kind of, you know, this quick. So I'm going to just do about a 3,000-word essay that will encapsulate the story. The spirit is what I'm trying to capture of Lincoln and what it's meant to the people of Oklahoma and uh, probably we'll have about 30 photographs, including the illustration of the layout when it was north-south. Yeah. So people will have that to look at. Um, and so, uh, and we have a, a few photographs of the historic golf course. We have photographs for most recent days. Aaron has a really good collection of, of drone photographs of the course and its beauty. And, of course, this is one of the most beautiful courses in Oklahoma. Yeah. And uh, some beautiful shots. And so it'll have probably continuing from beginning to end visually, the spine of the book will be these more modern uh, photographs, aerials, showing the course. And then we will punctuate that with historic photographs where we can. And then my text will be a chronological story uh, that uh, will, will tell, you know, how the course is, was founded, has been built, changed, the leaders, uh, the tournaments, uh, the competition, and uh, what it's done for quality of life in Oklahoma. Awesome. That's awesome. Now, our listeners can probably tell that Bob is a very polished storyteller, and, and that's not by coincidence, so not, not just because of his research and uh, his, his passion for the topics that uh, he goes over from uh, you know, kind of going through the history of a variety of topics, but uh, Bob has a podcast as well, right? So a lot of people taking road trips this weekend, Bob, on the 4th of July holiday weekend. So I want to give you a plug for that, man. Let's hear about your podcast. Thank you. Trey Thompson, who took my place about a year and a half ago as director of the Oklahoma Historical Society. Uh, we overlapped a month. I wanted to show him all of our museums and sites and everything. And in the car, we'd start talking and he'd said, Bob, this sounds like a podcast. And I said, what's a podcast? <laughs> I'm on the wrong side of 70. But uh, he said, why don't we do one? So we started. It's called A Very Okay Podcast. Uh, you, people with the apps, I'm learning about podcasting. You can hit the app and go find it, A Very Okay Podcast. It's on the website of the Oklahoma Historical Society, okhistory.org. Uh, and we've done, I think, 14. We've done them on topics like aviation. We've done it on politics. But one of them was on golf. And uh, we talked, not at Steve Carson as, as our guest. We typically will do 30 to 40 minutes on our own. Then we have a guest for 20 or 30 minutes. Uh, so uh, I would encourage people to, to look at that and see if there's some topics they might be interested in. I'm sure our listeners can visualize this, but I'm, I'm fumbling for my phone to look up that podcast on Oklahoma golf uh, right now. So I, that'll be what uh, uh, gets me through the, uh, the latter half of the work day here. I'm looking forward to checking that one out, Bob. Absolutely. AK, you mentioned the Facebook page. You mentioned the website for Lincoln Park. Got a Twitter as well. So you want to throw out a couple couple uh, drops there for those things? Yeah, sure. Facebook, just look up Lincoln Park Golf Shop on their uh, website, okcgolf.com, of course, that many people are very familiar with. Uh, and then we're on Twitter as well and Instagram. So we pump, try to pump as much stuff out there as we can to get uh, information out about anything upcoming. Guys, this has been awesome. Really, really appreciate it. I, um, no surprise, I'm sure, to you guys that I could sit here for another two or three hours and just keep talking uh, Lincoln Park and golf in general. But genuinely appreciate the time. Genuinely appreciate all that each of you do to, to promote golf in Oklahoma City. Uh, we're proud to have you guys as uh, um, guests on the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you as well. All right, thanks, guys. Man, what a treat that was. Um, that was again, awesome. as I mentioned during the 
podcast, something that we've been looking forward to sitting down and doing for almost a year now. And uh, it did not disappoint. Hope folks enjoyed it. And we will be deeply covering the ongoings, not only of the 100th year anniversary, but of the aforementioned club championship coming up July 9th and 10th. You'll be participating again, right? Uh, TBD. TBD? TBD on the club championship will definitely be here for the August 13th 100th year anniversary tournament. And we will cover all of those things via our social channels at YSO golf on both Twitter and Instagram. Big thanks to Bob and Aaron for joining us once again. Yep. Absolutely agree. Uh, uh, really enjoyed that. But uh, for us here at the sports pros network, of course you can check us out on the web at fantasy or you can follow us on Twitter at sports underscore pros. And remember that is pros with an E P R O S E enjoyed this one. Happy 4th of July, ladies and gentlemen, Go out there and celebrate America, play some golf, and as always, get out there and enjoy the walk. Mm-hmm.